Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking about AI, artificial intelligence. We have three guests with us, all in the studio. Dr. Cindy Mello-Silver is with us. She is the Barbara B. Jacobs Chair in Education and Technology at IU, Distinguished Professor and Director of the Center for Research on Learning and Technology. She's also a Professor of Learning Sciences. Dr. Beth Playley is with us. She's Executive Director of IU's Pervasive Technology Institute and the Michael A. and Lori Burns McRobbie Bicentennial Professor of Computer Engineering and Director of Data to Insight Center at IU. And Dr. David Crandall, Luddy Professor of Computer Science and Director of the Luddy Artificial Intelligence Center at IU. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So AI, it's a lot of people are talking about it. I think one of the reasons that we've it's sort of burst onto the scene is this idea of chat GPT. And I just have to start the show by saying that Aaron Kane, uh, one of our, our music director here, had sent a note, basically entered into chat GPT and said, write a 30-second intro to a weekly local public radio call-in show on station WFIU called Noon Edition, whose topic this week is artificial intelligence. And I want to read you the 30, a, a little bit. He got it in about two seconds. And it says, welcome to Noon Edition, Noon Edition, your weekly call-in show on WFIU Public Radio. This week, we're diving into the exciting and rapidly evolving world of artificial intelligence, from machine learning and deep learning to natural language processing and computer vision. We'll be exploring, exploring the latest advancements in AI and how they are impacting various industries. It goes on from there, but you get the picture. It took two seconds for it to write uh, a, uh, a, an introduction to our show. Um, so having said that, I wanna, I'm, I'm going to start with Dr. Crandall and just ask about artificial intelligence, about the it, something's new every day, isn't it? I mean, it seems like this is a very exciting area of study. Yeah, it's very exciting. And, you know, as someone who uh, has been working in this field for 25 years, we're sort of it's been amazing how much progress has been made. And I was thinking, walking over here, that 25 years ago when I was an undergrad, we were wondering whether an AI would ever be able to play the game of chess well. And now that just seems so, so easy compared to all the things we're talking about with ChatGPT and, and others. And I think there's some interesting things there. You know, one is, of course, the advance in technology. I think it's also the case that some of the problems we thought were really hard maybe aren't all that hard after all. Like, maybe chess isn't really as hard a game as we thought. Maybe writing isn't as hard as we thought it was. Well, it's yeah. interesting questions to think about. All right. Well, I want to ask Dr. Playley next just to, for an introduction, I guess, just to your initial thoughts about how, you know, how this, um, this new world is playing out right now. Yeah, thank you. Oh, I you know I agree with David. I think it's I think I think the the landscape is 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 exciting. I think the the potential for um, AI um, uh, doing um, um, contributing in positive ways to society is is exciting. Um, you know, I, I I'm always concerned about the technology getting ahead of our ability to. Um, uh, position it 
um, properly so it doesn't cause undue harms. I think that's, I expect that's a topic um, we'll come back to. Uh, Chat GPT certainly sprung onto the scene in a way that, that I think just caught many people by surprise in terms of its, its capability. I mean, it was just a few months ago that people started, uh, colleagues in my, in my world were feeding it questions, trying to figure out what it knew and what it didn't know. So this is, this is all, um, um, you know, the impact, I think the impact is, is not only being explored um, by scientists, but I think it's also being explored by companies as they try to figure out how they uh, take advantage of it. I mean, it's obviously something that that you know Microsoft and, and OpenAI invested in uh, in developing to monetize it. The, the intention is to monetize it. So, in in what way does it get monetized and used? Um, effectively um, by companies, um, you know, and I, I guess I'll, I'll I'll stop there. I have another comment to make, but I'll all right. Well, we'll, we'll have we'll have another nearly an hour for you. Okay, excellent. So, and <laughs> Dr. Mello Silver, in the area of education, I mean, how important is this research, and and how sort of transformational is it? I think the opportunities that um, it's providing to think about how we can support whole ranges of learners at both individual, small group, classroom levels, as well as thinking about how we can support teachers. I think 25 years ago, I was probably um, maybe a postdoc, but working in a place where there was a lot of AI and education work going. And I didn't think it was very interesting. Hopefully, they're not listening to this now. <laughs> but it was very much um, about tutoring in well-defined areas like physics, like algebra. And again, that was really important um, and, and is a very well-established area of AI and education and has done lots of good. But the kind of work I've been thinking about is how do we provide opportunities for kids to engage really actively in learning, solving problems, and how do we support teachers in being able to do that? Because you've got lots of moving parts going on. So I think we understand enough now about both the behavioral side and the advances in AI are making things that I could have never envisioned um, 25 years ago as ever being possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I have to ask well, my colleagues about is, you know, Am I thinking too far ahead? Um, so there, there's so many exciting possibilities now. Okay. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've all sort of seen this, and I think I think for a lot of people, it does feel like something like ChatGPT is this sudden thing that's happened. But in fact, it's it has been this long evolution. I mean, you're all speaking to having been working in these areas for 25 years, and of course, there's been work going on in this area for a lot longer. And, and as, as I understand it, one of the things that's made it possible for things like chat GPT and all the other advances that have happened is 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 the the availability of data um, there's just so much more data and the ability to utilize that data mine that data and analyze and so forth and along with that have come a, a lot of um, concerns appropriately about about how we are utilizing large data stores to make decisions, which is what artificial intelligence does, at least to a great extent. So I, wa I wonder if each of you can talk about the, the way in which the advent of big data, what we think about as big data, and new approaches to how we handle data, both technically and from a policy standpoint, um, affect this area and how we should be thinking about that as well. I, no, Beth. Maybe you want to kick. kick yeah, thank. Yeah, thank you, Laurie. No, and and, you know, and I appreciate the uh, the the the, the um, segue into into that that topic. There's something similar to ChatGPT, and it's called um, GitHub Copilot. And GitHub Copilot will recommend um, pieces of of software, basically lines of code, uh, to programmers. And it has done that by harvesting all of the software that's available in GitHub repositories that's all publicly available. Where it is running into problems is much of that code is, is on, under an open source license, but the open source license requires that the license and the copyright notice be conveyed through to use, to, to use and reuse, so that it can be used in commercial uses, but that license and copyright has to carry forward. Um, 
uh, GitHub Copilot does not do that. GitHub Copilot just integrates all this software into its model, makes recommendations without any tracking back or lineage back to the back to the sources. So from from that point of view, it is violating at, at this point in time. It is violating licenses by by its presence. So one could look at. Uh, ChatGPT, and I know this is a stretch, and say, what copyright is it violating by make by what it's creating? And and you know, and I think there's a whole world of of copyright consideration there. In you know, is it fair use? Is it a a new product, or is it reworking of of existing text? And I, th- I think the, there's a whole area now that this opens up that has to be considered. But you know, if our individual products that we put time and attention into and, and carefully licensed are being contributed into this knowledge base, that credit needs to go with it and needs to carry through. Yeah. Uh, uh, my, this might be a very simplistic question. Yeah. Maybe I'm the guy who's going to ask those today <laughs> on the show. But, but I, I think about that. I think about it like in my world of, of plagiarism. So if one person types into Jet, Chat GPT. Um, I, I want a 500-word essay on the book Moby Dick that highlights the major themes, and then somebody gets that and writes it. But then somebody at another university or another high school says the same thing. Are they going to get this? Are they going to get the same exact um, essay? Like, uh, I mean, is Chat GPT going to plagiarize itself? I guess is what I'm asking. So that's like a really interesting and deep question. I mean, they're not really? going to get exactly the same answer because ChatGPT is like non-deterministic, which means inside it's like flipping coins. It's have, there's random numbers that are happening there. Now, so that means those two students wouldn't get exactly the same essay. Um, however, it gets more complicated because I think many of the properties of those two essays would be very similar. So because it's sort of drawing on the same knowledge base, maybe the arguments are structured the similar ways, maybe the writing style, which if, I don't know if folks have played around with ChatGPT. By the way, you can do this. It's openly available online if you just Google ChatGPT and play around with it yourself. You'll see that the, the writing is you know, not Shakespeare. It's like very kind of simple uh, ways of writing. It's very convincing that it could be written by a person, but it's it's not sort of the deep kind of, uh, you know, literature that you'd really want to engage with and curl up with at, at night, for example. Well, I, I'm going to turn it back over to Lori, but I just thought about that when you're talking about, you know, licensing issues. I think of it in terms yeah. of this, you know, plagiarism issues too, which could be possible. Yeah. Lori, yeah. On. Well, I, I think there's a there's a, um, a, a number of other other sort of questions around how we handle data, but I do want to come back to. Because uh, we've been talking about ChatGPT, and in an educational setting, where suddenly it's in, it is in the classroom, and and the way you know standard curriculums have been designed, you know, around students having writing assignments and so forth, and all of a sudden, I would imagine that professors and teachers have to start accommodating the fact that students are probably going to use this to generate. And so that's going to change, I would assume, how assignments are constructed. And I just wonder if in each of your capacities, both as in the classroom, but as you're, Cindy, you in particular, looking at this more broadly across education, how, how you think that's going to play out in, in the classroom setting. I, I, I I think there's a couple of ways that, at least what I've what I've seen in in the media and and in discussions with, with folks. I think one is certainly thinking about the kinds of assignments, and um, ways that those can be structured, in ways that ask more complex questions, and not things that can be answered with with very simple kinds of questions. I think that some of the other um, bits that I've been reading, for example, um, I think this was in the New York Times, where one teacher said, let's let the kids use GPT, chat GPT to make, create their outline and then go from there and then have to do the writing. Do we have to start asking kids to handwrite stuff again? And I just think about my own handwriting there. Hmm. Um, so I think thinking about the kinds of assignments and also are there ways that we can use chat GPT to help people think more critically about what comes out of it. When we were at, um, the, um, at a forum for our a- National Science Foundation AI Institute, everybody was, of course, talking about chat GPT. So I said, here's this paper I haven't been able to get started with. Let me just ask it, 
what, how it would introduce it. And it was actually really helpful in thinking about the introduction because I was just stuck. Hmm. And, and I sent it to my hmm. students. I said, you know, here's what we can use. Most of this is not at all useful, but it might have a good first sentence. And one of the students said, do we have to cite ChatGPT as a co-author now? <laughs> um, and so it, it, was, it was useful in, in, in that, but, um, but only in as far as getting me a first sentence. So I think we need to think about ways we structure assignments, what, you know, ways we talk about academic honesty and dishonesty. Yeah, yeah. But also gonna... ways where we say, you know, it's here, what, what are we gonna do with it? I've seen analogies to um, when everybody had calculators. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's an opportunity for us to make sure that, as an instructor, to make sure that the assignments I'm giving are really measuring something deep and they're not lazy. It's very easy if I, if there's, I need to release an assignment tomorrow and I can't quite decide what to make the assignment, I can put a one sentence thing that says write an essay and blah, 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 blah. And, but that's kind of lazy. That isn't really getting to the, the point of what I really want to, to, to the students to show. And so maybe it should be more about, in, in my discipline of computer science, maybe it should be more about final projects or oral presentations or, or that sort of thing where I can really get a better sense for what it is these students have really learned versus what is this product that has been turned into me. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, and kind of a mixed mode of, of, of presentation one should be able to talk about as well mm -hmm. as write about what is, what, what is important. Yeah, right. and I, I yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And collaborative assignments where you know, mm -hmm. students are having to work with each other in real time and face-to-face mm -hmm. -face and so forth are you know, maybe mm -hmm. more, um, become more, more, even more prevalent than they already are. So um, what, do you, what do you see as the, um, the when you, if somebody, uh, I guess I'm going to ask you the major advances in AI right now, what do you see as, as maybe one or two? I'm sure there are a hundred applications that could be very positive. Can you give us an example, Beth, of one or two applications that you see as very exciting that can really um, drive society forward? My goodness. Um, you know, I think it's you know I think it's uh, that this uh, venue that um, that that my, that Cindy mentioned was was uh, a venue I was also at and and someone was there talking about a speaker was there talking about the difference between automation and augmentation where automation is replacing jobs and augmentation is assisting and amplifying. Mm -hmm. Um, um, one's a human's ability to do work, and and I think that distinction is very important. I think you know AI is, you know, it has the potential, particularly you know robotics in in in, in earlier time in future courses, less certain in in replacing jobs, particularly manufacturing jobs. But I think the potential lies in augmentation. Mm -hmm. And I think the and my, I would invite my colleagues to to weigh in. I think healthcare has a. Um, a, 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 a big potential in augmentation. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, a notion of of having you know records of of individuals that are kind of digital records of individuals. We've got a notion of a digital proxy or a digital twin, and you know, could that be the the manifestation of a human such that things that you know, medicines that are given or procedures that are given are are can be checked against this record that's a little more comprehensive, a 3D record for accuracy. So I do think, you know, aiding, aiding in patient care and aiding in diagnostics, aiding in, you know, radiologists that are reading x-rays for, that can maybe pinpoint accuracy that the human eye can't pick up, you know, reading the human more quickly for precision medicine. I think there's a lot of potential mm -hmm. there in an augmented, using AI in an augmented way and not a automated way. Okay. And I think similarly in schools thinking about how can we use AI to help the teachers um, and support them in being able to do the kinds of things that, that they are really best at with working with individual students and individual groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so I, think, I think we've never thought about trying to replace teachers, but rather we've thought about how can we help teachers um, do their work well, what are the things that that we can automate that let them do the kinds of things they do well and also places where we can can augment the kinds of things that they do. 
I'm really happy to hear both of you say this because I think a lot of people that are really the lay level when they when they look and hear about artificial intelligence, they think, oh, my gosh, there's going to be a machine smarter than I am. It's going to put me out of it's going to make me obsolete. And you're talking about augmenting what humans do to help move things forward. David, is my fear. So my fear is I'm not as fearful now. Let me put it that way. Well, so, you know, AI grew out of computer science, and um, the way that I got into this field 25 years ago was that I was just really excited about the technical challenge. Like, wouldn't it be cool if you could have a computer that could talk to you? And what are all the really interesting, you know, mathematical and computer science kind of challenges to doing that? And I think many of us now in the field are sort of uh, surprised by how much uh, AI is now permeating everything people are talking about. And I think... As we mature as a field, it's becoming more and more clear that we really need an interdisciplinary approach. So this is not about just computer science. It's not about just uh, technical developments to make things better, although those are very important still. But it's also cutting across, you know, this whole university, for example, things like legal issues, ethical issues, uh, designing systems with humans in mind from the very beginning. What is it that people want out of AI systems? What would actually make their lives better? And I think that's where we have to start thinking, starting with that, with the human in the center. And I think, uh, you know, Beth mentioned a lot of the work that's going on in AI is in industry, which is totally true. And I think, you know, industry has different um, priorities. They're trying to bring return value to their shareholders. The university, like IU, our you know shareholders are our responsibilities to the state and to the public. And I think that we sort of hold this responsibility to make sure that that interdisciplinary approach is really is really is is really central to what AI becomes in the future. And I, I would agree with that, David. I think the the role of the responsibility is an informed citizenry. And you know, chat. If we look back at ChatGPT, ChatGPT is not the definitive source of truth. And in in a sense, it's it's um, you know, it's misinformation. To, to, you know, mis- it's very good. It's very good. It was misinformation taken to the on steroids, basically. Yeah. So so how do we how do we educate? You know, the 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 students that 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 come to us on the awareness of the limitations and the, and the uses and the proper uses so they can make informed decisions. And I would say informed decisions about, about you know, use of something like ChatGPT, but also informed decisions about, you know, models, you know, that if they're in a, um, you know, this is a, an example I know that Lori knows well, if they're, in, you know, in a position of a judge and, and they're using a tool that's making a pre- uh, prediction about recidivism uh, rates of, of, of people returning back to prison, you know, and, and are, they, are they believing that, you know, and are they trusting the data, going back to the data, are they trusting the data that went into training that? Is it appropriate in the context of their county, of their state? You know, and all the, and it takes a really informed citizenry and informed in ways that go beyond, you know, the kind of your civics. It's beyond it's it's knowledge about the potential for harm that that is inherent in this discipline that that again it, with a place for where that education has to be done is the university. Yeah. And and that critical information literacy I think also now needs to move to steroids, right? Because we've we've had issues with um, reliability of information just being out everywhere. And now we not only have deliberately placed misinformation or or things that may not um, that may not be true, but we've also got chat GPT or or AI able to to bump that up. So so making sure that we educate um, students to be able to think really hard about, inf- you know, what what they see in writing. Yeah. No, and yeah. I think there's another piece to this, too, another awareness. Um, so if a, com- if a company is, um, you know, so where, do, where does one stop in getting, <clears throat> getting advice from chat GPT? And if one takes, if one is putting together a legal document that's proprietary information about a company, well, let me just consult chat GPT because this is pretty dry stuff. One is basically feeding this information maw 
information that's proprietary in nature. And when and at what point are we realizing that we cannot do that? And then does ChatGPT become tailored for you know the 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 company environment such that it is not revealing information. It's learning from what it's getting and spreading that further. I mean, there are just so many, so mm. many yeah. interesting yeah. <laughs> and issues. I think issues of privacy and data in schools. Absolutely. Also, I think you've got similar kinds of issues. I'm going to give our contact information again in case our listeners have questions. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can contact us at Noon Edition. Lori? Yeah. Well, I just th- I think this is a great conversation. And it, I think, um, as Bob said, I think you know certainly the lay, if you will, the lay view out there is always, oh, my God, AI is coming. Um, very much a negative, fearful, um, it's bad, et cetera, and, and turning it around into understanding that every time we hear about cases, and you know, another one that uh, Beth and I have talked about as well is, uh, I think it was Amazon that, that discovered that it, it was using, as is the case now, a lot of companies use AI or, or algorithmic-enabled processes to make hiring decisions, and they were hiring a lot of white men. Well, because they were, the, the algorithms were using historical data, and historically, those companies, like many, were hiring white men. And so that just became, those became the models that were being used in these processes. Well, that's a bad story, right? And, you know, certainly for, for women and people of color and so forth, I mean, that, that, that just sounds really, really terrible. But Amazon's reaction to that was to fix it. And so this, this, I think re, uh, um, points to the importance of information literacy, data literacy, and and consumer ability and transparency, and the ability of us as consumers of information, as well as and Beth, you make this point too. We're also producers of information. Every time we're out on Twitter and Facebook, we're putting information into all those data stores that wind up getting used, and we should be mindful about that. But I think we have to have some degree of transparency so that when those things, those automated processes don't work, don't have the outcomes that are fair, have outcomes that are very biased in ways that we, we all agree are not equitable, how do we fix it? And I don't know what, what, what work is going on to think about those questions of transparency, a, a kind of right to repair, if you will, when a process is broken. In, in a in a deleterious way, and I don't know any of you. Maybe Beth, I know you can speak to this. David, you as well, as well. So I can maybe answer at the technical level, and then uh, maybe Beth can answer more at the policy level, which I don't know. But it's sort of the technical level. There's a lot of work that's going on into understanding why AI models make the decisions that they do, and how they can explain that to a human in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if there is a situation like this, and the AI says, "I hired this person because he's a white man," like, whoa, well, okay, we need to revisit this. And and I think you know that might be sort of a hopeful um, point for using AI in things like hiring decisions. I, I, by the way, am very skeptical of using uh, AI in hiring decisions for exactly the reason that you said, because usually they're trained on historical data, for example. So if there were already biased processes in place, the AI just continues it and makes it worse. However, the good thing about the AI is it is like a box that you can look inside. It is a, it is an objective thing that's making decisions. And so in principle, it would be possible to look in that and see what kind of biases that it has. Whereas if there is a hiring committee, they might have all kinds of biases and you can't look inside their heads and figure out what it is. So we can, as a society, decide what should the standards really be. Sure, we could have workshops for that hiring committee to try to educate them. Maybe they'd listen, maybe they wouldn't. But at least in principle, the AI could actually be programmed to make those decisions objectively. It's much harder, it's much easier for me to say that than for it to actually be done. And that's kind of the work that's going on at the technical level. But I I think it's possible. It's in principle. Yeah. 
Great. Yeah, thank you, David. Um, I always enjoy listening to both of you, actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, let me, I'm, I'm, instead of a, a kind of a policy view, I'd like to, to, to go to a, a project, a big project that I'm involved in, and it's one of the National Science Foundation-funded um, AI institutes, and these are large transdisciplinary projects. And our, the one I'm involved in is, is around um, infrastructure for AI. And what it's done is really given us uh, kind of an experiment, what I consider an experimental playground. We've set democratizing AI as a goal. And what does that mean? Acknowledging that bias can, going back to what David was saying, that bias can be you know, in these models, and these models need to be transparent with respect to to uh, to people that to people that are intending to use them. You know, and there's other dimensions. So what we're doing in the project is trying to couple that together with, you know, what in in terms of can they make that determination from the from what's explained by the model itself? How do we augment that with training? And then how do we how do we imbue in the developers that? from end to end kind of what the transparency they need to have in their thinking, just trying to stitch together where the vulnerabilities are that will allow informed decisions to be made by those that are using this infrastructure and the models and the data that are embedded in this infrastructure. So it's a research project, and it's a five-year research project. We just finished year one, but but fortunately, the you know the the federal the, these federal agencies are acknowledging that that these. Um, these problems are are big and and are and are putting funding into solving them, which I think mm-hmm. is to its credit to keep us both competitive and benefiting society. What well, sounds to me like the humans are still in charge, which is good. We have an eleven year old who has actually asked us a question. He just asked his mother. He said he asked if uh, this is the start of the robot apocalypse. <laughs> How would you respond to that, David? So of all the things I'm worried about, I am not worried about a robot apocalypse. Okay, and, good. And, but, of course, you can be forgiven for thinking that because in the movies, that's how it happens, right? Mm-hmm. AI takes over and then suddenly starts, you know, going on murderous rampages and stuff. I'm actually not worried about that at all because, you know, the, like you said, the humans are in control. I think what worries me more is the extent to which we as a society are going to trust in technology that we shouldn't trust for things like hiring decisions. Um, You know, I think that is the kind of way that uh, this could happen. AI could lead to a very bad outcome. And I think that's why we need conversations like this and a multidisciplinary approach to make sure voices are at the table to point out those possible problems all, all along. So to answer the question, no, not worried about the robots, but I'm worried about something more subtle, which is the way that these technologies could be trusted in a way they maybe shouldn't be trusted yet. Mm-hmm. Can you exp- oh, go ahead? I, I just wanted to to point out that I think that this ability to be able to explain how the AI is working, both mm-hmm. as we as we move into schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so we also have the NSF Institute for Engaged um, Learning, where we're thinking about how do we do story centered learning with in K through twelve. But we also want to be able to have teachers understand why recommendations that they might get or what we're doing with students are things that they understand, as well as also um, some of our projects are teaching kids as young as fourth and fifth grade about AI. And probably when we started that project, I was a little skeptical about doing that now. We should absolutely be doing that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Cindy, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to have you um, weigh in here because this and the point about um, certainly universities is where we need to be really digging into data literacy and information literacy. But it has to start sooner than that. And I, I you may have heard the story I've told a couple times about my now six year old grandson who they have you know uh, I think Alexa in their house and uh, and he. For some reason, of course, Alexa was saying something he didn't want to hear, and and so he said, "Alexa, will you shut up?" And Alexa responded, "That's not a very nice thing to say." <laughs> and so his response was, "Alexa, will you please shut up?" <laughs> and I and he's six. Actually, this happened when he was five, and he's not too young to get a little bit of insight into why it was that this thing that was not human sounded human to him, and he interacted with it in a kind of human way. Um, so I think, I think 
I think we have to, like with a lot of things, we have to start young. Um, and we want to start in a way that empowers young people, it seems to me. And so I think the work that is going on there is, is really crucial in that regard. I'm glad to hear that that's, that's happening. I want to ask, I want to follow up with, uh, I think, David, I think you've, you, you've said multidiscipline approach and you've said an interdisciplinary approach. How, what's that look like, an interdisciplinary approach to AI? That, what's it look like that we're not maybe taking full advantage of now? Or even transdisciplinary, which is also <laughs> in, the, in the vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> David, go ahead. <laughs> well, I think at a very high level, you know, there's enormous opportunities and challenges for using AI in different problems. And so the way that I see those terms is that as we think about how AI could benefit education, for example, medicine, transportation, all the other kinds of benefits it could have, we really need teams with expertise that's both from the computer science side, from the like, uh, from the cyber infrastructure or the the hardware side, from the domain area like transportation and so on. We all we need these people all working together, and we also need to have folks working in ethics, working in the societal impact of these things, and really sort of centering the human. I think in what we do, centering people to make sure that we're solving problems again that really make people's lives better, as opposed to just solving problems that seem kind of cool to solve. I think that that's what it means to me. And Beth can give a better uh, description of what these different terms mean, but that's what it means to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, really, uh -huh. there are definitions of it. But I okay. think, you know, for, for this case, it's really people coming together with different expertise where all of that expertise is valued. Um, because it is all part and necessary for the solving uh, for the solving of problems that we can't a technologist can't solve an educational problem without having the deep insight of of someone that's an expert in education and that's that's the key of the of the interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary um, activity. Yeah. I mean, look, may I also? Yeah, I know, sure. I'm sorry. All right. There's also. I wanted to go back to something Lori said that that I think feeds into this is Chat GPT would not be where it's at right now had we not had Google years ago coming up with its indexer and, and its big crawler that crawls the web and these massive databases that allow the analysis to go on. So you know, Chat GPT's knowledge is is the internet for good or for bad over some period of time. Um, it is not, you know, I was, um, I'm, I'm familiar with the Hathi Trust, the, uh, with Hathi Trust, which is a corpus of 17 million books, digitized books from university libraries. That is not part of ChatGPT. So ChatGPT is drawing common knowledge that it gets from the web, arguably a ton of it, but that's what it is. So again, so it would not be here had we not had prior contributions to basically computer science, information science, information representation, and so on, back through time. Okay. So. Great. Thank you. Uh, Cindy, we have a question that's come in for you. It says, in regards to education and AI, does, does a, the AI, I guess, does Siri or Alexa know who they are conversing with? For example, someone in the fourth grade may not be able to understand something as well as someone in the eighth grade. Does AI, is AI able to distinguish this so so let me separate that from that from Siri and Alexa because okay, gotcha. I'm, I'm not sure we're we're having Siri and Alexa in the in, in the classroom in, in that gotcha. iteration okay. I think when we design depending on I, I mean we certainly try to design for particular contexts in in education so if we're trying to um, design, for example, a, a, a game-based learning environment, just to give a not quite random example. Um, we're designing it for the kids that we expect to use it. So, so what we might design for eighth graders might look different from fourth graders. But we're, you know, depending on the software, it may or may not know a lot about individual students. It may focus on groups of students. But I think when we, we design, we also want to think about how do we build learning environments that can adapt to the particular populations that they're working with, with the particular classes, the particular grade levels. Okay, good. 
Yeah, Lori. Yeah, I just this is this is there's so many other directions to to go in um, with a lot of this, but I guess I'm uh, sort of back on this point about um, cross cross trans multi interdisciplinary um, teams and so forth, um, and without. Uh, uh, putting any of you on the spot, but I'm curious to know where IU is in approaching things in this way. I know the institutes that exist on campus, and maybe you could speak a little bit more to the work that's going on here at IU that's both obviously happening. There's lots, of course, going on in the Luddy School, but um, more and more across a lot of other places at the at the university, and be curious to know how you see that playing out compared with what you know about you know, other parts of higher ed and where those collaborations, of course, are happening beyond the university. But how are we doing, really, in, um, generally speaking? How's higher ed doing and, and Indiana University doing in really approaching things from an interdisciplinary perspective? Um, so I'll say, you know, I've been here at IU for 12 years um, as a professor. One of the wonderful things that I love about IU is that there really is this very strong uh, encouragement and history of interdisciplinary research. Yeah. And, you know, starting with the school that I'm in, the Luddy School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering, we are a really remarkably broad set of faculty um, that includes everything from folks working on like the theoretical mathematical basis of computer science to people working on how to how to uh, represent how to collect data to people um, thinking about you know high performance systems to people thinking about the history of computing the societal impact of computing the design of computing systems uh, with humans in mind and so I, I just think we here in particular are, are really well positioned for this sort of future of AI that is not that is not just about sort of technologies, but is about really the impact of that technology and how to maximize that. And um, uh, so we're, we're working right now on setting up a, a new center here called the Luddy AI Center. And that is envisioned as sort of a home for AI across the university um, that's more because of the fact that AI grew out of computer science, but now we're realizing that it really makes connections all around the university, all around all parts of society. And we're hoping that this could be sort of the home for that and also hopefully sort of a front door as well so that if folks um, around the university who want help with AI, maybe applying AI to a project or maybe uh, folks throughout the state and in a company or whatever would like to bounce ideas off of us, get some consulting help with some AI ideas, they could sort of walk in that front door. And so I, I think the university is very well positioned personally. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I, I would add to that there was a, a an AI week that Indian University uh, broadly um, hosted last year that involved the medical school um, IU um, Indianapolis and and IU Bloomington and I thought that did a really nice job of setting a very broad context that that went beyond the the strong connections that that are you know Luddy plus you know plus the School of Education plus uh, the O'Neill School and other schools to uh, to embrace the other uh, expertise on campus on, on our other campuses. And one of the really interesting collaborations that's going on here is looking at sort of the intersection of human intelligence and artificial intelligence. In other words, what can what from what we know about how kids learn, for example, can we use that insight to be create better AI models? I, I have to say, you know, uh, being a computer scientist, the more that I work, the more impressed I am by people because somehow, like, you know, your grandson or whatever, he's able to learn how to write over the course of experience of a few years. It took us, what, 60 years of research in, in AI, and it took ChatGBT probably tens of billions of documents it had to read on the web or something like that to just get to this point. And, you know, people are just amazing at this. And I think that kind of synergy of looking at intelligence broadly, both human and AI, is another kind of very unique thing that we do here. Yeah, yeah if I could ask about the about the new center, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the possibility that, I mean, in, in Cindy's area, education, um, my area is, you know, news gathering, for instance. So if, if I wanted to walk into the center and say, I think AI could really help us with, you know, solve some problems of, of diving into what government's really up to, how can, can, can we get your help? Is that the kind of thing that you would entertain? 
that's exactly the kind of thing that we would entertain. And I think, you know, the answer to your question, depending on what your question is, might be, oh, yes, you know, you can, you know, Microsoft Word already does that. You know, you don't need us and AI. Or it might be, you know, call us back in 100 years. That is a really, really difficult problem. Because sometimes if you're not intimately familiar with the technology, it's hard to even understand what is possible and what's impossible. And sometimes our answer might be, yeah, we could maybe find a student who could uh, do this as a, as a thesis project maybe. Or, uh, or it might be, here's a faculty member working in this area. And this is a really interesting research question. So, so we're hoping to build that, at least virtual front door in the in the in the months and years that come. That was a very kind answer to your question. To, to my <laughs> question, I appreciate. It. But yeah, I, I think that it's a, it was a great answer, really, because if you you know if somebody's going to have to have a little bit more knowledge to come in to to say, yeah, I've been thinking this might be something that AI could help us with. And then is there a way to do that? Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm curious to know, with respect, just thinking again about, you know, cross-disciplinary work also out, out, in, outside the university, um, what kind of interactions, both you as individual scholars and researchers, but generally are you seeing we have with, with companies, private companies out there, just, you know, again, thinking about the this kind of mad rush to get the first cool product or second or third, um, chat GPT being, you know, everybody's wish they had stock in it and so forth. Um, but there's a, the pace of development is so fast um, out in the commercial world. Are we interacting well with certain companies so that there's, you know, some of what we're learning about the human impacts, human-centered design and so forth, are you, are you having collaborations with companies that are doing that? So I think almost all the researchers in AI here at IU that I know of are working with companies in one way or another. Um, some actually, uh, you know, might take a sabbatical and work with com and work with a company for a while, which is you know sort of great from both from mm -hmm. both sides. Um, some folks have funding from companies to work on a particular project that's of mutual interest. So I you know I have some of that, for example. And of course, companies are very interested in hiring our students, uh, at least until the last month or two when the economy has gone a little bit south. But I think that's probably a temporary thing. Um, you know, it's been very hard for them to find find people. I think probably the biggest challenge to us at IU in this area is actually just our geographic location. It's we're not in Silicon Valley and, you know, we're not in a big city. Um, so we're not right down the street from Google. I think that's both a challenge and an opportunity. It's a challenge because, you know, then it takes maybe a little bit of extra effort to build those collaborations. It's also an opportunity because then we here at IU can think about some of the applications of AI, for example, that aren't designed in, for a big city. They're designed for a um, mostly rural state mm -hmm. and far from sort of the population centers. And I think there's a different um, design considerations in terms of infrastructure, in terms of other things in, in in those two areas. So again, challenge and opportunity, I think. Yeah. And I would hope that, you know, and, and thank you for that, and I would hope that, that not would hope, but I would, I would expect that remote work is helping also mm, right. in terms of putting talent in places where it necess wasn't necessarily, it was kind of, we were kind of getting flow, outflow from the Midwest, and maybe some of that inflows back in, and with that is interest in, in funding. And, and certainly the National Science Foundation, where I, where I served there for several years, the National Science Foundation is certainly takes a regional view in terms of trying to develop economic and research potential. And so there may be forces that will work in our favor as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there places that where AI is uh, being implemented right now that people might not be they might be interacting with it every day, but they're not thinking about it. Beyond Siri and Alexa. Well, those are two. Yeah, those right? are two. <laughs> any any place else that people may be interacting with it every day, but not thinking about it. So I think AI is a very broad term, and we could spend the next hour trying to define what is and is not AI, and I don't think it's productive okay. to do that. But, but I think a lot of the really simple things we take for granted now, you could say, are AI. Um, things like um, Google searches are a form of AI. Things like the ads that Facebook uh, and other companies serve you online, those are a form of AI because they're using what you've looked at in the past to try to decide what you're likely to buy 
in uh, in the future. You know, I, I knew I rented a brand new car recently, uh, and I was impressed by all of the driver assistance technology that was built in, where it told me if I was swerving out of the lane or if I was getting too close to another car. Mm-hmm. I think you could say all of that is a form of AI as well. Okay. So I, I, and you said, and I said you were going to say something, but I've also uh, there was a, a a question that came to our our office of the vice. I use office of the vice president for IT in terms of where I, AI was being used today. And one of the obvious examples I gave was your, your chat. You know, you got your chat, not, not chat bot. You know, mm-hmm. that's there answering questions for you. Well, that's right. a, that, and that's mm-hmm. a prevalent example today. Yeah. You were going to say something. I, I, I was just thinking. Um, I think about a year or so ago, I was. I was actually swimming and changing, and I had it set on my Apple Watch that I was swimming, and when I was done, it said, you did this many laps of backstroke and this many laps of breaststroke and this many laps of freestyle. And I'm like, I, I think I, I texted one of my collaborators and saying, this is AI, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, I think a lot of the ways facial and speech recognition mm-hmm. is is working now, and um, and again, you know, these are these are all the things that make people think, oh my God, the you know the machines are going to take over, but in fact, they're they're enabling us, they're augmenting our ability to function in society now. We have about two minutes to go, Lori. Do you have a I was I was just going to uh, yeah this you know we can do this quickly is just what are each of you most excited about in the near term in terms of what you're working on um, you know what what's what's cool that you're doing well, what, where I'm putting a considerable amount of my time is is working on the the issue of of trustworthy AI and, and and just going back to what I said before the the interdisciplinary transdisciplinary project setting of expertise allows I think progress to be made in that area that that would be very very difficult otherwise. So you know, yeah. like I say, can we, you know, can we get can we can we get AI situated in society, particularly in support of, 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 of science, basically, science and scholarship, in a way that that isn't harmful. And, and yeah. so I guess I consider my, my role, though I am a computer scientist by training, as um, ushering, <laughs> ushering and curating a soft landing for AI in our yeah. society. And I know it's a long, a long... Yeah. <laughs> 30, 30 seconds 30 each. Seconds. <laughs> Sorry. Um, as part of the... AI Institute, we're trying to create narrative-centered learning environments, but thinking about how do we tailor them to different places and school populations, and how do we help teachers in all that? So thinking about, um, you know, the the ability to tailor things not just at an individual level, but at a community level, in ways that makes really exciting learning opportunities that are really active, yeah. um, available for yeah. lots of kids. Yeah, David. And I've been really excited about working with the psychologists like Professor Linda Smith here uh, who studies kids and how they learn and using the insights from AI to get answers there and using the insights from her lab to improve AI. I think that's really cool. Yeah. All right. I want to thank our three guests, our our AI experts. I want to thank uh, Dr. Cindy Mello-Silver, Dr. Beth Playley and Dr. David Crandall all for being here with us today. For my co-host, Lori McRobbie, for engineer uh, Mike Pashkash and for Nathan Moore, our producer, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Thank you.